Hier komen wij in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. I'm Emma Norton. And I'm Chloe Rafferty. And today we're recording on Gadigal land, land that was stolen, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And today we're talking about Palestine. So for the second half of this episode, I spoke to Vashti Kenway, author of The Story of Palestine, about why Israel is an inherently racist, imperialist project and has been really since its founding. But to start with, Chloe and I wanted to talk about what's happening right now in Gaza and um, and Palestine more broadly, and how the media and ruling classes of the world are manufacturing consent for a genocide. So, Chloe, let's start with what's going on in Gaza. Well, Gaza, as you know, most supporters of Palestine will know, is the world's largest open air prison, and Israel is attempting to turn it into a mass grave. So, uh, over four thousand four hundred Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, including 1,756 children as of the 22nd of October, so as of our recording right now. Um, And Israel have uh, destroyed a quarter of the Gaza Strip. Um, Over a million people have been internally displaced within Gaza since the war began. Uh, And, you know, many, many Gazans were already uh, refugees, you know, from previous Israeli wars. And Israel have ordered the evacuation of 1.1 million people uh, from northern Gaza, something that is uh, an impossibility and you know recognised by uh, you know international uh, institutions as a war crime. So large groups of people are sheltering in crowded houses with strangers in the south, uh, or in tent uh, tent refugee camps um, in the south as well. Um, and they have you know n- nowhere is actually safe. So actually, Israel bombed uh, some of the columns of people fleeing uh, from the north to the south. Um, uh, they have. Israel struck hospitals, schools, residential buildings, mosques and churches, and the horror is just unimaginable. So hospital staff are staying um, in the areas that you know were meant to have been evacuated uh, to tend to the sick and the dying in the hospitals of northern Gaza. And they know that they are you know very likely to die, but can't bring themselves to leave the vulnerable alone um, in these hospitals, hospitals that it's you know impossible to evacuate. So people are trying to bury their dead while Israeli aircraft uh, responsible for those murders watch the funerals overhead, just sadistic. And this onslaught is not about freeing hostages, as Israel claims. Uh, They are carpet bombing the Gaza Strip, uh, actually where Israeli hostages are being held. Um, If their aim was to release, um, uh, was to free hostages, they could negotiate the release of any of the, you know, over 4,000 Palestinian political prisoners that were held in uh, Israel before the war began uh, and many more since then. Um, so why are they doing this? Uh, because this war is actually about escalating Israel's existing campaign of genocide against the Palestinians. Yeah, and in the last few days, the question of aid into Gaza has been in the headlines. So Israel has so much control over Gaza's resources that at the start of the war, they were able to stop all food, water, electricity, gas and medical supplies from entering the Strip. And this has added to the humanitarian crisis, which already existed in Gaza, but has now just escalated to um, to completely inhuman proportions. The response of the West to this has been absolutely rotten. So European countries, including Norway, Sweden and Germany, announced that they were cutting off all aid to Gaza, allegedly to prevent it from getting into the hands of terrorists. Food and water for the Palestinians are basically being seen as deadly weapons that pose some threat to Israel, and that's being used as an excuse to starve out the Palestinian population of Gaza. Uh, Biden is currently going around the world bragging about his generous offer to let 20 trucks into Gaza uh, once the so-called potholes in the Rafa crossing were uh, were repaired. And these potholes, it's worth saying, they're actually large impact craters from Israel bombing the crossing at the beginning of the war, specifically to keep aid out and the Palestinians in. So how very generous of Israel and the US to repair them. Uh, Once they they have actually repaired them today and they've let 20 aid trucks, uh, which have now rolled into Gaza. But this is just a drop in the ocean for a population of 2.3 million people. Uh, Before the war began, about 100 trucks would pass into Gaza every day. And even that, when you think about it, 2.3 million people, that is completely inadequate uh, to prevent Gaza from being in a, a state of permanent humanitarian crisis. To make matters even worse, Biden has reserved his right to prevent any further aid from entering the Strip after these 20 trucks. He's calling these trucks a test 
to see whether that aid will fall into the hands of terrorists um, rather than go to the people that need it. But, I mean, this is just ridiculous. We're talking about trucks full of, of food and water and medical supplies um, as though this could be used as some kind of weapon against Israel. It's just ridiculous. Um, another of Israel's atrocities recently has been the bombing of the al Ahli Hospital in Gaza City last we- uh, Wednesday. And just the appalling experience of, you know, international media, Biden and governments around the world uh, trying to say that, you know, the Gazans uh, bombed uh, their own hospital. This really should have been a pretty obvious war crime of Israel. Um, immediately after the attack, uh, Netanyahu's top aide, Hanania Nefatali, uh, gleefully took responsibility for the strike um, and later deleting uh, his social media post. The hospital had already uh, been hit by Israeli airstrikes on October 14. Its staff had already been told to leave by the IDF, and Israel has bombed many hospitals, UN schools, and other civilian uh, civilian infrastructure. So it's an outrage that this strike um, you know, killed over 500 people, but it should not be a surprise. Um, Israel um, has done uh, as what they have done many times before, lied about the strike, blamed it, uh, it on a misfired um, Islamic Jihad rocket. Um, so over the last week, yeah, we've been subjected to this farce of Israel um, they actually fabricated an audio recording of supposed Hamas officials talking about a misfired rocket that purportedly hit a hospital, and that has, you know, just been immediately uh, debunked uh, by you know Arabic speakers who have listened to the recording. And we've seen the Israeli Defense Force uh, publish photos supposedly proving this claim, then having to remove the photos uh, because they had the wrong time stamps, uh, stamps or aerial photos of the wrong location. Yeah, and this isn't new conduct for Israel, it's worth mentioning. Whenever they commit a war crime that seems a little bit too beyond the pale, they try to pin it on the Palestinians, a kind of, you know, victim-blaming cycle. They continue to do this basically because there are no consequences, even when they're shown to have been lying through their teeth. The media will still credulously report their lies to the public. So some examples from the last few years, and there's many more than this, uh, but some examples include when Israeli soldiers shot and killed Shireen Abu Akhla, an Al Jazeera journalist who was wearing a press vest at the time, and they blamed the Palestinians for her death uh, before having to admit weeks later that, um, in fact, it was an Israeli or at least it was highly probable that it was an Israeli soldier that shot her. Uh, so we know that you know, they, what they claimed originally was completely false. In 2003, when a West Bank Army bulldozer crushed to death the young American activist Rachel Corrie, the IDF uh, didn't take responsibility for it. They lied again. They blamed Corrie herself, calling it an accident. And in 2014, they incorrectly blamed a series of bombings in Gaza on Hamas then as well. And they keep getting away with these lies, partly uh, because Western governments will always jump to back them up. Um, We've seen that this week. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, claimed that the hospital attack was carried out, quote, by the other team, uh, while Penny Wong, Australia's foreign minister, uh, rushed to say that Israel wasn't responsible. It's worth also talking about uh, the West Bank a bit, uh, which has been largely left out of the international coverage. The West Bank is the front line of ongoing Israeli annexation of Palestinian land. Thousands of armed and ruthless Israeli settlers have been stealing Palestinian land, bulldozing their homes and killing Palestinians for years. Um, And in sync with the IDF's bombardment of Gaza, these settlers, Israeli police and soldiers in the West Bank have stepped up the violence there. So over 90 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank um, in pogroms, and Israel has implemented a curfew uh, for Arabs, for Palestinians, uh, who are stuck in their homes uh, while Jewish supremacists um, rampage in the streets, break into their houses and bash and in some instances kill them. Um, and Israel has also set off uh, two airstrikes against the Jenin uh, refugee camp. Uh, and this is very important because it demonstrates what this so-called war is all about is not about Hamas because Hamas do not govern the West Bank. Um, it's just the intensification of a policy of ethnic cleansing that has been ongoing since 1948 and which has been particularly severe in the past few years. The settlers are the most uh, heavily armed part of the Israeli population outside of the military. They are the fascistic, racist base of the far-right political parties in the Knesset uh, who have been pushing for years uh, for more settlements, more military intervention, and they have been totally let off the leash in the past two weeks. 
Yeah, and the prison population of the West Bank has actually doubled in the past two weeks to 10,000. It's just extraordinary. And these, you know, are effectively Palestinian hostages or political prisoners who've been captured by the Israeli Defence Force and and, um, security forces. The media and the Western governments have just been totally silent on this issue. And, you know, they would never refer to these people as hostages, but that's effectively what they are. Um, Hostages, I might add, with no um, possibility of release. And let's talk now about how Israel is able to get away with genocide and massacres with the backing of the entire Western media and governments. You know, these institutions right now are working hard to manufacture consent for Israel's war crimes. I mean, thankfully, and we'll talk about this a bit later, but many people can see through this propaganda, which has been really heartening. Um, but it it is interesting to see these institutions going into overdrive to convince us that what we're seeing on our television screens, on our phones is justified. So one example from Australia is when Penny Wong was asked about Israel's order to cut food and water from Gaza. She was asked whether she thought that was justified and she answered that it was hard to judge from afar. Um, Now, just pause to take that in. That's a direct quote, hard to judge from afar. This is the foreign minister of Australia whose literal job it is to judge international events from afar and yet she has no opinion on the collective starvation, uh, forced starvation by Israel of 2.3 million people. I think Wong basically has to hide behind cowardly statements like this because she actually supports Israel's supposed right to commit these war crimes, but she can't quite bring herself to openly say such unsavory shit out loud. I mean, the Israeli government do say these things out loud, but their pathetic supporters just sort of repeat ad nauseum the line that Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, That way they don't have to openly admit that they're supporting a genocide, but at the same time they can give cover to Israel to commit one. It's absolutely disgusting. But Israel, like I said, really does say this stuff out loud and the Western media conveniently ignore that. Uh, It's more something that Israel, you know, says internally to its own population. So, for example, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said, quote, this is not merely our battle. It's the battle of the entire civilized world. It's the battle of Western civilization. He claimed they're in for, quote, a long war against modern barbarians, the worst monsters on the planet. They've now decided that Hamas and the the Israelis rather have now decided that Hamas is, quote, worse than ISIS and worse than the Nazis. This is ideologically preparing the world for genocide against Palestinians. This is the language of genocide, you know, demonizing and dehumanizing Palestinians to the extent that any horrific crime can be committed against them uh, while the world watches on. And, you know, this is similar to some of the rhetoric that we heard for years against Muslims to justify the killing of over a million Iraqis in the Iraq war and many uh, hundreds of thousands of people in Afghanistan as well. Another discussing element of the past two weeks has been the media coverage, the you know state and corporate media in the Western world. And there is just so much wrong with the way that this issue is discussed in the media. The most uh, blatant uh, tactic is to just never provide an ounce of context about the ongoing process of genocide and ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians, which did not begin on October 9th. You'll Never hear, uh, you know, Western journalists go back, you know, to 1948 uh, or give any of the kind of background to the massive expansion of illegal settlements. It's as if everything just begun on October 9 with Hamas's attack. Um, Another aspect is just referring to the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza as the Israel-Hamas conflict or the Israel-Palestine conflict. And this language, which has been used for years to talk about Palestine, implies that there are two relatively equal sides, so two armies of hostile states facing up against each other instead of, you know, one of the most uh, heavily armed militarised states in the world and, uh, you know, open-air prison and a a series of Bantu stands uh, in the West Bank. And they also try to imply that this is just an ongoing forever conflict, that, you know, not that it's a, you know, very modern conflict beginning in the 20th century, but, you know, goes back to, you know, the Roman Empire or something like that. Uh, between Jews and Muslims Um, and, you know, the racist language and Islamophobia implies between civilised and uncivilised people. And it's a way of trying to make people just shrug their shoulders and say, you know, oh, those crazy Muslims, that crazy Middle East. I saw a current affair uh, just referred to what's happening as, quote, another flare-up in the Middle East, as if you're meant to just dismiss that as just just like a violent, uh, Mm. racked area, as if there's nothing uh, that underpins this, not a whole, you know, hundreds of years of Western imperialism. Another tactic of the media is that any time they interview Palestine supporters, particularly Arabs and Muslims, journalists continuously ask them to condemn Hamas 
and imply or openly accuse them of supporting terrorism. And this is just a cheap racist tactic used to discredit people who want to stand up for basic human rights, dignity and self-determination. And no journalist in the West ever asks, um, you know, pro-Israel representatives or even representatives of the Israeli government uh, to, to condemn the war crimes of this Israeli government, you know, before they're allowed to say anything else, uh, even when they do support those uh, war crimes. Um, so the media have, you know, openly labelled pro-Palestine supporters as terrorists. Uh, the BBC actually had to retract, though not apologise for, uh, describing the uh, pro-Palestine rallies across the UK of like hundreds of thousands of people, not as pro-Palestine demonstrations, but as pro-Hamas demonstrations. Um, and one really appalling example um, of, uh, you know, the kind of media uh, censorship and, uh, you know, the biased approach on social media in particular is uh, Instagram has had to uh, apologise for the fact that they had been translating an Arabic word into the word terrorist. And that actually meant that pro-Palestine Instagram profiles automatically had the word terrorist attached to them. Outrageous. Yeah. In spite of all that terrible pro-Israel propaganda we've seen, though, I think Palestine, uh, Palestine and Palestinians are actually winning new supporters. This past week, we've seen an overwhelming outpouring of support for Palestine around the world. It really warmed my heart to see tens of thousands of people flocking to Tahrir Square in Egypt to support Palestine. Um, Tahrir Square, if people don't know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but uh, it it translates to Freedom Square, and it was the heart of the Egyptian revolution. Um, And that square really hasn't seen much action since the defeat of that revolution, and people to get there actually had to break through barricades. Um, And so it's just incredible, not just in Egypt, to see... Uh, people across the Arab world who have been protesting, you know, against Israeli embassies, against their government's own ties with Israel and in support of the Palestinians. And in the West, hundreds of thousands of people have defied uh, repressive bans, um, you know, in places like France and Germany and repressive threats to come out onto the streets. So 100,000 are in London. And there was a really moving and defiant protest in New York called by both Jewish and Palestinian groups where 136 people were arrested uh, for calling for a ceasefire. So it really shows the lengths governments will go to to silence pro-Palestine activism. Yeah. And here in Australia, um, there have been some attempts by our state governments to um, shut down protests and to intimidate people out of going, but we've still had some really incredible demonstrations. And us in Socialist Alternative have been part of activist groups making those happen. So yesterday, uh, Chloe and I were very, very excited and and lucky to um, attend a protest in Sydney where we had 30,000 people in the streets. So all of this is a really wonderful development, I think, to see so many people standing with Palestine across the world. Uh, But the role of socialists right now is not just to call these rallies and to demand immediate ceasefires, aid to Gaza, and that our governments break ties with Israel, though that's all important. But I think it's also crucial that we explain why the entire project of Israel from its inception is a racist and imperialist one. We don't go around demanding some fantasy two-state solution that just leaves the genocidal Israeli regime intact. We instead demand one democratic state over all of historic Palestine for all of the Muslims, Jews, Christians and everybody else who live uh, between the river and the sea. So with me is Vashti Fox. She's the author of The Story of Palestine, and she's been a revolutionary socialist for well over 20 years. Uh, She's been heavily involved in Palestine activism in all of that time. And she's a leading member of Socialist Alternative now based in Perth. Welcome, Vashti. Thanks, Emma. Lovely to be here. So the point of our discussion today is to talk a bit about the history of Israel and to give our listeners a sense of why it has always been a racist colonial project that's heavily tied to Western imperialist interests. So I think a good place to start, Vashti, would be with Zionism, which is sort of the founding doctrine of the Israeli state. Can you explain a bit about where that ideology came from? Uh, Sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that 
Zionism and Judaism are two separate phenomena. Uh, as I think Omar Hassan said in the last Red Flag podcast on the issue around Palestine, there's a real concerted attempt by the Israeli state to, across the world, basically make um, Judaism and Zionism and the state of Israel basically indivisible. But the whole history of Zionism actually demonstrates uh, that initially, um, as uh, Zionism actually developed as an ideology, it was only a minority current within Judaism and Jewish populations across the world. Um, and more than that, um, that there are um, and were um, many Jewish people who did not um, agree with Zionism, did not approve of it, um, and indeed were kind of not part of Zionist organisations. So really that's the first thing to say. I think that's a really important distinction to be made. The second thing is that the whole history of kind of early Zionism uh, demonstrates that this was uh, a, a, a current within the Jewish movement, which was dominated by a middle class and, and wealthier Jews who were really feeling constrained by the very real anti-Semitism that kind of existed uh, across the world. But their response to it was basically to argue for the need for complete Jewish separation uh, from um, gent a Gentile population or a non-Jewish population. And they wanted and desired their own uh, state that they could um, succeed in, that they could control. For the vast majority of working class and poor Jews across the world, that aspiration was not at the forefront of their minds. Really, um, many Jewish people, um, actually in their tens and tens of thousands, were uh, working class Jewish people, especially across Eastern, Eastern Europe, um, were members of socialist organisations. And their response to the kind of anti-Semitism, which in many ways was um, deeply structural and expressed as part of their a, a working class oppression was rather to, to say um, we need to stay in the countries that we live in, we're not going to be pushed out and we're going to actually fight that anti-Semitism where we are. So I guess to kind of come back to, to what Zionism is, fundamentally it's an idea that Jews and Gentiles cannot live together uh, and Jews need their own state that they control. And I think there are really two logics that kind of flow from that very core ideology and, and these two logics are very important for today. I would say that they're, they're absolutely um, vital to trying to understand what is happening um, in Gaza and in Israel today. So I think the first logic is that the desire uh, for a separate homeland, as it was expressed uh, in the latter part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, um, required the Zionist movement to look to imperial powers. And I think we'll probably explore that a little bit more later. Um, but certainly by the time Zionism was established as a serious kind of political movement in the early part of the 20th century, the whole world had basically been divided up by all of these colonial powers. There was really no part of the world which was not part of one zone of control or another by, um, you know, uh, Western European powers. Um, and so really for a, a kind of a, an aspirant movement, a movement which desired its own land and its own state and its own military and its own economy, how could you do that? You know, there is no land in the world which is not controlled by one force or another. So what do you have to do? Well, effectively, the Zionist movement had to appeal to the colonial powers that dominated the world. Um, and so they really started to kind of do the rounds to approach a variety of kind of states and governments. They approached the Russians, they approached the Germans, the French, the British, um, you know, to see where they could get the most amount of support from. And the British as it proved, were really the most open to their proposals. They sort of could see the strategic advantage for them in building up a, a colonial population of mainly European and Eastern European Jews in the kind of strategic zone of Palestine, um, which was eventually where the kind of the Zionist movement settled on. So, you know, the, the Zionists kind of approached the colonial powers. The colonial powers could see some advantage to it, but clearly colonial powers don't give things for nothing. They're not just kind of going to do something out of the generosity of their um, black, black hearts. 
And so what, what would actually have to be guaranteed in return and in return, what the Zionist, um, the aspirant kind of Zionist movement uh, could provide for the, those European powers was absolutely kind of unflagging support in, in the region. Um, so that's the kind of one big dynamic and we can kind of explore different aspects of that later. Um, but I really think the second main dynamic that, that it's vital that we explore now is the ways in which Zionism actually, um, as, as a fundamental and integral part of it, leads towards ethnic cleansing and genocide. Because really, when you have a separatist ideology, um, then all elements of the new state, and this happened uh, really in the lead up to the establishment of Israel in 1948 and then certainly was consolidated afterwards, um, is to basically ensure that every single state institution uh, is dominated by people of your own religion or race. Um, and I mean, this is this is sort of in lots of other places across the world. This sort of ideology would effectively be known as kind of supremacy. You think about um, when someone like Richard Spencer in the United States, you know, demands that white people kind of dominate the United States. That's called white supremacy. Or you know, in India, when um, Modi and um, and, and the kind of government over there, uh, you know, m massacre Muslims and, and try and um, insist that the state is dominated by Hindus. That's that's Hindutva or, or Hindu supremacy. But in Israel, there's kind of not a similar kind of approach taken. But that kind of separatist and, and, and Jewish supremacist ideology really demands um, that the Palestinian population be smaller, that it be weaker, that it be excluded effectively from all of the major institutions of the Israeli state. Uh, and, and really that was all kind of built into the project from the get-go. I actually had a kind of a, a, a quote here from um, Theodore Herzl, who was one of the founding figures of Zionism, um, and he was very explicit from the very beginning that that one of the fundamental projects of of early Zionism and really that continues on to today um, was the expropriation of Palestinians from their land. That um, as long as Palestinians are in close proximity and uh, to to the state of Israel and kind of have their own aspirations for control and a homeland, that is a threat to the state of Israel itself. Um, so in 1895, he said uh, in, in a, his private diary, but it was a personally held um, attitude, uh, we must expropriate gently the private property of the estates assigned to us. We shall try to spirit the penniless population across the border by procuring employment for it in the transit um, countries while denying it employment in our own country. The property owners will come over to our side. Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and circumspectly. And basically from Herzl in 1895 to the much less discreet and much less circumspect attempts to expel the Palestinians from Gaza today, yeah. I would say that kind of that that thread, that logic is is and remains there. So let's talk about that logic a bit. Um, obviously, people, a lot of people who follow this issue would know about 1948, the Nakba, um, the founding of the state of Israel. But there's this whole period between 1917 and 1948, uh, where called the British Mandate, where the Britain, uh, sorry, where the British Empire approved Zionist migration to Palestine. Um, and I think, you know, before that Zionism was quite a fringe ideology, you know, and it wouldn't have been able to become a reality if it didn't have that relationship with imperialism that you talked about. So can you just talk a bit about the British mandate? What was the nature of that early settler project? You know, how did the British help the Zionist settlers? What was their attitude to the Palestinian um, indigenous people and, and so on? Well, again, I think this history is really important because there is so much pathology built up about the history of the State of Israel and its relationship to the Palestinians. Got a very, very effective propaganda machine um, and really the whole kind of project of um, Zionist migration to Palestine uh, began um, earlier, um, very early in the, the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. Um, but that, myth that mythology is kind of basically that 
um, in response to all of the absolutely undeniable horrors of the Holocaust towards the Jewish population in World War II, that the British ruling class kind of came to their senses, um, realised that this beleaguered, poor, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, devastated population needed their own kind of beautiful homeland and that the British state kind of stepped in to back them and that was just kind of, um, you know, a heartwarming display of, of, you know, British care and concern um, and about anti-Semitism. But, you know, really nothing could be further from the truth. Like <laughs> um, The whole of the British ruling class, the history of it is filled with the most vile anti-Semitism. Um, mm. The royal family, as people might have some sense, is kind of well-known um, and, and well-documented documented history of anti-Semitism. And Winston Churchill was for excluding all Jewish people from major kind of institutions of, of um of the ruling class in Britain and the Jewish population actually inside of Britain was um, marginalised, oppressed, you know, poor working class, you know, forced to live in, in the worst kinds of slums in, in the east of London and so on. So, you know, it's just lies, absolute lies that any of this occurred because the British state occurred, um, you know, cared for, cared for um, Jews in, in response to the Second World War. Um, but it also kind of doesn't fit with history either because the whole yeah. project began much earlier. Um, so, uh, and I think all of this comes back to the role that the Middle East plays uh, for global capitalism. Uh, as I said before, the latter part of the 19th century was a period of intense Western European expansion across the world. There was uh, all of these kind of dominant colonial powers which were developing their own domestic capitalist economies, were looking for new fields to plunder, new uh, populations to um, develop as labour forces and also uh, new resources to um, basically smash and grab and, um, you know, enable that they could kind of control. And, you know, when that kind of scramble for different parts of the world happened, um, you know, all of the major powers kind of rushed to Africa, they rushed to the Middle East. And the Middle East was really important um, even before the... the um, the discovery of oil, which only became a more kind of significant commodity in the early part of the 20th century. But the region was an incredibly vital bridge for trade between mm. Western Europe, India and Asia. Um, and so when you look at some of the statistics for the, the Suez Canal as it was kind of developed in, in, um, in the 20th century, you know, this is just huge amounts of global trade, which is kind of going through this canal. Um, and so control of this region becomes super important to all of these different powers because imperialism is effectively about the uh, Western European powers, the big capitalist powers, trying to get one up over their um, rivals. Um, and so uh, really World War I broke out over those kind of imperial skirmishes. And the British tried a whole swathe of different tactics to dominate the region over the years. So they appointed sort of potentates, you know, figures that they could control, figures that they could, you know, um, that they could uh, uh, sort of have in their corner, um, you know, people who were very separated from their own populations, but the British kind of backed, gave huge amounts of money and so on. So a little bit like the kind of backing of Maharajas in India. Um, they divided and ruled uh, religious groups to kind of pit them against each other. And in Palestine, uh, sort of fortuitously for the British ruling class in a way, they had this uh, migrant force, this um, Zionist um, bodies, which are basically offering themselves up to the British state that if you help us uh, migrate and, and establish ourselves in Palestine, we will work alongside you to kind of um, help dominate this region in the interests of, of um, British capital. Um, and and so that kind of exchange really began then, um, and so Zionist migration to uh, to Palestine kind of continued and, and increased in the in the lead up to the First World War, and then even more um, during the mm. British Mandate period after um, after 1917, and in the lead up to the Second World War. So um, it was kind of this happy meeting of of circumstance, really, that that um, the Zionist forces and the British. Uh, imperial interests began to align. 
Um, and then the mandate period kind of looked like um, you know, in, increasing communities of, of Zionist um, Jews kind of establishing themselves, uh, separating themselves out from the local um, Palestinian, um, Bedouin and Arab populations and um, beginning to sort of create their own attempts at kind of a separate economy and a separate state. Yeah, right. So let's move on to 1947, which is when the UN decided to partition Palestine mm. and basically greenlight the creation of a separate Israeli state. Can you explain why the UN did that? People often think of the UN as this humanitarian body that's there to make sure the, the rules of war and, uh, you know, human rights laws are kind of enforced by uh, across the world. Why would they green light this, this genocide and ethnic cleansing in Israel? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that question the other day when I was watching the news and and they were talking about the United Nations um, kind of ruling and on the situa- the current situation in Gaza and, you know, all of the kind of ridiculous ideologies that are associated with the United Nations as this kind of peacekeeping body when the, the camera kind of panned around the room and in, in, in it was basically Giorgio Maloney, who's the fascist leader of, of <laughs> Italy, you know, ruler after ruler of every kind of dictatorial, um, you know, capitalist country in the world, just sitting around talking and pontificating about human life as if they, you know, give a crap. Um, mm. And, you know, somehow all of these horrific leaders of, of governments across the world that are doing horrible things to their own working classes, their own populations, the moment they kind of sit down in the United Nations um, on those kind of, you know, funny 1970s style um, seats, that all of a sudden they become, you know, these leaders of world peace. And it's just it's an absolute joke. Anyway, back to the question at hand, which is um, the why did the UN back the establishment of Israel. Well, really, I think there was kind of two elements. You know, it was the League of the League of Nations coming out of the end of, of the Second World War as a kind of um, international body which was going to try and establish world capitalism, really, um, you know, and establish some degree of kind of the stability for the powers that came out of the end of the war, um, the, the strongest to try and maintain uh, different kind of institutional relationships of power and control across the world. And I think the um, for the British who had come out of the end of the Second World War with their power somewhat diminished, um, you know, they'd sort of overcommitted, um, won the war, but it had cost them a huge amount, both economically and militarily. Um, and there was a whole range of countries that, that they had controlled as part of their colonial program that had uprisings that were in the process of kind of um, separating themselves off uh, from Britain, that Britain kind of wanted a broader kind of forum to be able to deal with the the situation of Palestine, number one. Number two, um, you know, the various kind of other forces across the world, which also wanted a bit of a hand in in the reshaping of the Middle East after the war, um, felt that the United Nations was a kind of body that could help um, to divvy up the spoils of the war um, in a more effective manner. Um, and then there was also the issue of what to do with um, the many, many hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees which had been displaced through the war. And, again, it is absolutely important to say here that country after country, including the United States and Australia, refused, simply refused point blank in many instances to accept the number of um, poor um, fleeing Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. And rather than kind of deal with this population that they felt might be disruptive to their own domestic political setups, they said, okay, well, you know, let's try and cut a deal and let's send a bunch of these people um, off to um, Palestine and, you know, um, basically kind of um, back them. So, uh that was kind of effectively, I would say, the the reason why the UN kind of got on board with this kind of partition plan. 
which was deeply, deeply unfair, even though the Palestinian um, population made up over 70% of, uh, of Palestine, of, of what was to become kind of Palestine and, and Israel, um, and the Jewish population only 30%, the partition plan effectively said it should be a... Um, a 40-60 split with the bulk of arable land and many of the important cities um, given to the Zionists. Um, and so that kind of, you know, fundamental dynamic of, and, and that process, actually, many of the Palestinian and Arab leaderships refused to participate in that protest, process, um, effectively kind of led the UN to kind of back it um, and to, uh, you know, give this kind of, um, give the imprimatur to the Israeli state to, to be set up. Mm. And so the Zionists in Palestine basically took that UN partition plan and implemented it in what's known as the Nakba, the the catastrophe in Arabic. Why mm. is it called that? What what did they do? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of this extremely seminal, scarring moment for Palestinians and uh, you know across. The region um, and inside Palestine, and has fundamentally shaped not just the politics of Palestine and Israel, but actually the politics of the entire Middle East. Uh, what it looked like, it was the uh, removal, the forced removal, the ethnic cleansing of over 700,000 Palestinians from their homes, from their villages, from their farms. Uh, there's a really wonderful Israeli historian called Ilan Pape, who um, <clears throat> in, the, um, in, the, in the post-war period kind of produced this history, which is just absolutely meticulous in detail and went through all of the Israeli, both military and economic kind of archives, um, and basically um, has documented the degree to which this ethnic cleansing, this process of ethnic cleansing was a very... Uh, clear-sighted, organised attempt at removing uh, the Palestinian population from their land in order to establish this kind of Jewish supremacist state. Um, And, uh, you know, it it not only involved kind of the, the, um, the, uh, you know, forcible kind of removal of people just at the point of a gun, but it actually involved many um, massacres and, you know, you can read Ilan Pape's book and it just kind of details in just the most horrifying um, language uh, the attitudes of the Israeli military um, and how they described some of the massacres that they committed. Um, one, you know, one of the most famous is, is at Deir Yassin. Um, another was in Tantura, which is um, near Haifa, I think, and you know, he kind of describes how there was over 250 um, men who were um, lined up on a beach uh, and, you know, were basically just shot in the back of their heads as they kind of looked out at the sea um, with many of their families watching. And, and um, it has one kind of uh, description of a young man who, who sees his um, father killed and um, just loses it all all sanity at that point um, and, you know, other people are, are trying to calm him down and talk to him but he, you know, I mean, what would it mean to see your parents killed in front of you? I mean, you know, the absolute kind of barbarity of this, um, you know, this process and so, you know, it's not just numbers, it's not just figures, it's not just statistics. The Nakba was a very personal catastrophe mm. that happened. It's not just geopolitics, it, it's... Um, you know, it's massacre, expulsion, the creation of refugees, the removal of people from their homes um, in one of the most, uh, you know, devastating moments in, I'd say, kind of global but certainly Middle Eastern history. Mm. And it created an enormous amount of refugees, like you said, you know, half the population of Jordan are Palestinian refugees, I think a majority of the people of Gaza as well are internally displaced refugees from Elsewhere in Palestine, like there's just yeah many millions of Palestinians um, in a diaspora who have no right to return since um, since that moment of ethnic cleansing in 1948. Yeah, and I think that that kind of issue, the the refugee kind of question, uh, you know, I mean, it's about to again be a quite significant issue um, today. 
but I think the, the that had really significant kind of impacts on on regional politics. That many of these refugees uh, from the Nakba um, now, as you said, live in all of these um, parts of of the the region in basically permanent refugee camps. Many of them only kilometers away from the homes that they had been um, pushed from, uh, and are just never able to return. Not not for a holiday, yeah. not for a little visit, not for a you know a moment of nostalgia. Nothing. Just not being able to return. And so, um, mm. you know, whereas when you look at the kind of the rights of of so called return for um, Jewish people across the world. I mean, it, it's it's significant. They, if you can prove any um, Jewish inheritance, then you have the right to go and become a citizen of Israel. Um, mm. And absolutely, no such right is accorded to any Palestinians. Yeah, I just can't even imagine. You know, these millions of people who are born, live, and die in a refugee camp their entire lives, basically not citizens of any country, technically, and it led to this phenomenon that you describe in your book really beautifully of um, the Palestinian refugees who still have keys to their homes or to their parents' homes that, you know, were taken in 1948, um, you know, that they can never go back and, and unlock. Maybe those houses don't exist anymore, but it's a kind of symbol of the, um, the, the you know, everlasting desire to return to, to Palestine and not to accept this ethnic cleansing. Yeah, I've got actually on my wall the most beautiful picture of this kind of ageing um, Palestinian hand with all of its wrinkles with dirt under the nails and it's got this old key and it's passing the key down to this kind of childlike, chubby little toddler hand. And I think mm. it's the most, you know, beautiful, poignant, um, you know, uh, symbol of the passing on of the kind of national aspirations of the Palestinian population mm. and also of that passing on of a sense of defiance of of struggle um, and of the capacity to remain um, steadfast, which is key to the Palestinian struggle throughout the decades. Mm. Well, let's move on to talking about 1967, which is another really key turning point of, of horror and trauma for the Palestinian people. Um, and it's really the moment when the US becomes Israel's biggest backer, kind of takes over from the British uh, in that role. Can you explain what happened then and, and, and why that, that shift towards uh, the US occurred? Mm. Well, I mean, really the US had kind of, by the 1960s, but really coming out of the end of the Second World War, uh, was the preeminent power in the world. You know, they'd really established mm -hmm. themselves. Um, they were the only power to have dropped the nuclear bomb on anyone, and that certainly sent a signal. Um, their main rivals in the kind of Cold War period were the um, USSR, the, the Soviet, the Stalinist Soviet state. Um, and, and that kind of dynamic, that Cold War dynamic, really again kind of informed much of the politics of the Middle East throughout this whole period, this great power rivalry between the USSR and the United States. And again, just like the British in their competition with the French in an earlier period, the United States wanted to mobilise and uh, rely on a variety of different forces in the Middle East for um, support for their imperial aims and their imperial projects. Uh, and over time, it became very clear that Israel would be that force. So what happened in 1967 uh, was a war between um, Israel and a number of the Arab states. Um, the Palestinian population, many of those um, people that we were talking about who lived in the refugee camps were expelled to these refugee camps. Many of the young um, people who had grown up, as you said, only in refugee camps were really chafing at their own oppression and, you know, became part of this kind of wave of both nationalist revolt um, and, you know, many of them were very inspired by the Vietnamese resistance to US power um, and the various kind of other, um, you know, nationalist movements and, and rebellions which were happening across the world. That kind of provoked a war um, that, the, that Israel and Syria uh, uh, got involved in, out of that war, 
the Israeli state came out um, uh, victorious. They occupied uh, what had been kind of um, parts of other countries in the, the area, so the West Bank, um, the Gaza Strip and um, parts of Jerusalem in what became known as the Occupied Territories. Um, but really it was the huge military victory that Israel had had over both the Palestinian forces and the, um, the Arab states uh, that meant that the US thought this is a goer, this is the force mm. that we now have decided is the one we want to back. And by the end of that war, um, US funding for Israel rose by something like 450%, you know, just phenomenal amounts of mm. kind of money, um, arms, military support started flowing in um, to Israel. And I think, what was the figure? It was something like between 1967 and 1972, the total of US aid to Israel jumped from $13.1 million to $600.8 million per year. Um, and that whole kind of approach has really um, continued and Israel has mm. proven to be a very, very helpful, loyal ally to the US in a variety of ways. It's, um, you know, it's helped facilitate it economically in the region. It has played a vital role in kind of crushing um, nationalist movements in the, the region mm. when the US has um, wanted those movements to be crushed uh, and you know, internationally, it's really kind of a, sort of been the, the back door for, um, you know, a lot of arms trade and, you know, where um, the US has wanted certain states to maintain their power. So for a long time, for instance, apartheid South Africa, um, the, the US government didn't feel like they could kind of fund it openly. But one thing they could do was to try and um, through Israel kind of give arms and support to South Africa. So that was the kind of role that mm. that um, Israel actually started to play. Yeah, it's probably worth cutting in here with a, a bit of a Joe Biden quote, um, <laughs> given that he's now the president, but he has been a big supporter of Israel, you know, for decades, for his entire time in, in government. Uh, and he said in the 1980s, although he's repeated this often, he still thinks this today, he said, if there was no Israel, we would have to invent one to make sure our interests in the region were pres preserved. He also said, it's the best $3 billion investment we can make. I think it's a lot more than a $3 billion investment now that they throw into Israel. But um, yeah, he's you know made it very clear uh, over the last few decades that the funding for Israel uh, is, you know, is not anything particularly to do with um helping the Jewish people or something. He actually said, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, to support the Zionist project. He himself kind of um, identifies as a Zionist um, because really for him, it's just about protecting US interests in the Middle East. That's the, the beginning and end of it is, you know, money and power. Well, okay. So some people on the left I've been reading over the last couple of weeks have argued that the West uncritically supports Israel because there's this sort of racist solidarity between settler colonial countries. You know, Australia and America were settled in similar ways to Israel through a process of um, of ethnic cleansing against the the indigenous populations, and so they must kind of just um, like each other for that reason, basically. Um, I think that doesn't fully explain it, though, because you know, then why do why does India, Egypt, uh, plenty of other countries that have had to liberate themselves from colonial oppression also wholeheartedly support Israel? So, could you explain why we see this unwavering support for Israel today? You know, not just from the US, but from Australia, European countries, and many Arab countries as well. Yeah, there are many different kind of hot takes that have been around about why it is that Israel sort of so unambiguously is backed by um, the United States and certainly by Australia as well. But just putting it down to some sort of sentimental attachment that these ruling classes have to Israel because of their kind of shared histories of dispossession and brutality and genocide towards their own Indigenous populations I don't think really stacks up. First of all, as you said, um, there are many other countries who are uh, not uh, settler colonial societies that uh, back Israel to the hilt. As you mentioned, uh, many of the Arab countries are now um, have deals uh, 
um, both economic and political and strategic and diplomatic deals mm. with Israel. Uh, one of the biggest um, backers of Israel in the world is um, Narendra Modi who, from, um, from India, and that is not a European or a white country in case people hadn't noticed. Um, but I think the kind of cold, hard facts of the matter are that Israel is fundamental to capitalist rule in the region and indeed to the kind of maintenance of the existing imperial order across the world. Uh, it is, as we've kind of flagged here before, it's a, one of the major military and economic powers. Uh, and historically, it's been a guard dog for um, American interests. Uh, you know, certainly has its own kind of aspirations and, and imperial aspirations in the region as well. Um, and it doesn't always do exactly as the United States says, but nevertheless, they kind of work in tandem um, with each other. And I think it kind of plays a variety of other really important roles for kind of global capitalism. Like, you know, for the capitalist ruling class, they're, you know, they're never governed by just kind of um, historical kind of sentiment. That's a completely mm -hmm. wrong way of thinking about it. They are governed by the desire to maintain their own power and rule, and Israel plays a vital role in that. So. When you think about um, many of the important things that Israel does, not just maintain itself strategically in the region, as I said before, but it's also um, a very vital uh, um, uh, sort of powerhouse of military uh, production, global production. And uh, there, there's a really interesting book just recently um, released by Anthony Lowenstein, an Australian mm. um, Jewish journalist, who's um, done a huge amount of research into the ways in which what he calls the Palestine Laboratory has um, been used by the Israeli state to export a kind of method and um, uh, I suppose a kind of a template for um, domestic repression and military control of populations. So, for instance, um, Israel uh, produces a whole lot of new technology, which is um, artificial intelligence um, weaponry that they then, in their words, kind of battle test on the Palestinian population and they then export that, you know, across the world. I think that's just a, it's just one element of the kind of, of mm. why Israel kind of matters to capitalist rule, but it's quite an important one. And it's also, and it, it sort of is a really important symbol of the ways in which our rulers are attempting, you know, to basically not just kind of support repressive regimes elsewhere, but in a period of intensifying, uh, conflict between the new superpower, you know, China mm. and the old superpower, the United States, that this kind of um, uh, military competition and uh, that kind of military preparedness for the next world war is becoming increasingly central to world politics and Israel plays a vital role in that kind of imperial ratcheting up, mm. which we're starting to see. Yeah, I think that's so important to, and Anthony Lowenstein's work has been really useful um, and quite revealing actually about the the degree to which Israel has been able to worm its way into, you know, lots of deals with countries all over the world, uh, not just the West, but uh, plenty of dictatorships and so on that want to be able to repress their own people um, with precise weapons and instruments look to Israel, um, which is, like you said, an expert in that. And I think it's important because it's not, you know, some of the way I've heard this talked about is like as though it's the West versus the global South and the global South will support Palestine and the West will support Israel. And I think that's really just not accurate, um, nor is it just about white supremacists versus black and brown people or something. You know, this is um, about a, a network of alliances centred on the US, um, which includes countries like India, like Saudi Arabia, um, a whole bunch of countries in the, the Middle East and Asia. Uh, and, you know, they have their enemies like Russia and Iran and so on, but that's none of that is really, like you said, sentimental or ideological or anything about clash of different civilizations. Um, it's really just based on these networks of 
of money and power um, rather than anything else. Um, I guess a final question, Vashti, is about the situation in Palestine. Um, people often talk about how Palestine has been disappearing over the last few decades, especially since 1967, when Israel seized a bunch of a bunch more Palestinian land, like you said. Um, so, can you explain how that that process of ethnic cleansing is is so key to the logic of Israel and what that kind of looks like on the ground today? Well, I think for a lot of people who are sort of coming to understand the situation in Palestine, it can seem quite complicated and, you know, there's a lot of history and people kind of talk about these different areas and zones and how do you possibly kind of understand it. Um, there's a, a really excellent map that maybe we could share in the show notes, which is actually called Disappearing Palestine, which gives a very visual representation of the reality of what that kind of, um, you know, disappearance fundamentally kind of looks like, that much of the Israeli motivations towards the Palestinians are driven by control of the land. Um, but more than that, really, the, uh, the threat of Palestinian life and Palestinian existence is in fact an existential one for Israel that they, as I said before, they, if you're going to be a, a um, Jewish state, which on many occasions the rulers of Israel have declared it to be, um, then you need to maintain demographic supremacy. And, you know, if you've got a growing Palestinian population, a Palestinian population, which in fact, and um, amazingly, given the amount of repression and death and destruction that have been rained down upon them over the decades, have managed to continue to survive and exist and push back against Israeli oppression right on the borders of Israel, that is always going to be a threat to their existence. Um, so it's not a matter of, you know, it's just Hamas that is a threat. No, it's a matter of the entirety of Palestinian population and identity is and the mere existence of that is the threat to Israel. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a really important fundamental thing to understand. Um, so the Palestinian population lives in uh, basically three kind of areas um, inside of and around kind of Israel. The first is Gaza, as many people would know, that kind of little strip of land um, you know, that's currently being bombarded and that's been under siege for the last 17 years. Um, the West Bank, which uh, is in three zones kind of effectively, A, B, C and C zones, um, and are controlled to different degrees by either the Israeli state or this, um, uh, this fake kind of Palestinian um, body which is not really got much power at all and which, you know, in many ways has historically kind of done the bidding of the Israeli, um, the Israeli state. Um, and in the West Bank, uh, the Palestinians who live there are also having their kind of land um, stolen from them. So whether it's um, by the Israeli state, which is kind of constantly kind of building roads, um, you know, walls and so on through Palestinian homes and villages, or whether it's by this kind of settler movement, which is um, funded, backed, you know, um, and ideologically um, basically kind of fascist, really motivated by the explicit goals of um, pushing Palestinians out of their land and denying them their rights. Um, and so the West Bank is kind of not this, uh, um, it doesn't provide any possibility for a serious Palestinian state. It's just, I mean, someone described it kind of like a, a Christmas ham. It's kind of, you know, um, basically kind of carved up um, and, you know, unable to be um, a contiguous kind of Palestinian um, state. And then the last section of the, of the Palestinian population is in Israel itself in the 1948 borders of Israel and many of those people are also being currently uh, driven out of their homes. Um, you know, in East Jerusalem, people may remember the kind of neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which uh, caused a real um, spotlight of, um, or spot fire of kind of um, intense uh, reaction 
when um, many um, right-wing Israelis basically tried to go into this neighbourhood and kick people, Palestinians, out of their homes. Um, so that kind of logic of, as we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, that logic of elimination, that logic of ethnic cleansing, that logic of genocide uh, really has continued right through to today. Mm. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Vashti. Hopefully we'll have you on again. I'm sure we will. Um, and people should absolutely check out Vashti's excellent book, The Story of Palestine. I'll pop a link in the show notes for people to buy that from Red Flag Books. But thanks for joining us, Vashti. My pleasure. So we are seeing a genocide unfold on our screens. Now is not the time to just sit at home getting angry on social media and yelling at Sky News. Now is the time for action. Uh, you know, anybody who you know sees the horrors of what's going on in Gaza um, needs to get out onto the streets and protest and to get involved with socialist alternative. There's just so much to be done. Uh, we've been running around the past two weeks getting the word out about these demonstrations, uh, convincing people of why they should support Palestine and become activists uh, in every major city. And we need many more left-wing people to help us to do that because the reality is that Anthony Albanese, Joe Biden, Netanyahu, uh, they don't give a shit if you support Palestine in your head. Uh, the only thing that is going to have an impact is if we have mass action. Yeah, I think people often look at these, you know, those important moments in history, things like the civil rights movement, South African apartheid, the Vietnam War, and many of us would like to think, you know, I would have been at those rallies, I would have been fighting for human rights, I would have been on the right side of history. Well, I think right now history is calling. The most important thing you can be doing with your life right now is fighting against the horrific injustice we see in Palestine, but not just there, against the entire capitalist system, because that is what has produced this horror and will continue to do so into the future unless we overthrow it. You know, if not you, who, if not now, when? And with that, we'll leave you until next time. As always, we have a world to win. 